Hey guys, Dylan Bowman here. Welcome to the Free Trail Podcast. Always love having you here. Today, something a little different. My guest is friend and Red Bull teammate, Mr. Payson McKelvin, a professional cyclist, both on the mountain bike and gravel scene. Payson is an absolute force to be reckoned with. He is just a beast on two wheels. He is also a podcaster. He hosts the awesome show, of course, mostly focusing on his sport on cycling called The Adventure Stash. It's an awesome podcast. Even if you're not into the cycling scene, I super recommend you check it out. I was actually on his show a couple of years ago. And today I get to turn the tables on Payson. He joins to help us learn a little bit more about himself and the sport in which he makes his living. I see such a parallel between gravel racing, off-road cycling in general, and what we're experiencing in trail running right now. Much like trail running, mountain biking and gravel is experiencing explosive growth. So it was fun to learn a little bit more about that sport and compare notes to the current circumstances in trail running. Much like myself, Payson is sort of going through a big career evolution at the moment, sort of a personal renaissance. So we talked a lot about that. We spoke about the state of the cycling industry, the new Lifetime Grand Prix, which is super cool. We talked about being a 21st century professional athlete, what that means, and a lot more. I just wanted to say also that we recorded this episode a couple of weeks ago and last weekend at Payson's season opener for 2022 at the Mid-South Gravel Race, a race he's won twice in the past this past weekend. He unfortunately broke his right collarbone and left hand in a super gnarly crash near the end of the race. Of course, a major bummer for any athlete um, and a tough way to start the season, but we'll be rooting for him as he battles back to health and back to the front of the Peloton. But yeah, again, we recorded this prior to that race and prior to that accident. So if you do follow Payson, that will make more sense during the conversation. This was really fun for me. Really grateful to Payson for coming on the show. I hope you guys really enjoy the conversation. As always, the Free Trail Podcast is presented by Speedland, the best trail equipment company in the world. It just so happens that today is a huge day in the Speedland universe. Today is the official launch of the SLHSV, the second shoe to emerge from the brilliant minds and design laboratory of Dave Dombrow and Kevin Fallon, it has officially arrived where the SLPDX was inspired by the trails of Portland, Oregon. This commission, the SLHSV, is inspired by the Southeast, specifically Huntsville, Alabama. It's funny, we actually talk about the trail scene in the Southeast with Payson on today's episode. Uh, but the SLHSV from Speedland has all the style, quality, and performance that you would come to expect from this no compromises brand. So go check it out at runspeedland.com. Pre-orders start today with delivery around late April. And like the SLPDX, there will only be limited quantities of these shoes ever produced. So don't wait. Go to runspeedland.com, pick up a pair today. Thanks so much to Speedland for their uncompromising support of our show. Okay, on with the program. Please welcome Mr. Payson McKelvin. Mm-hmm. 
Mason McKelvin. Hey, bro. How's it going? Say hello to the trail runners of the world. Yeah. What a, what an honor. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, uh, we sort of operate in parallel universes a little bit. I always am, uh, peripherally paying attention to the ultra running scene, trail running scene. Um, I think we have a lot of commonalities, but there's weirdly not a ton of crossover typically, but, um, yeah. What's up trail running world. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about your background and give a cleaner introduction to who you are, Payson. But I wanted to start our conversation by talking about none other than Aaron Lutzi, a man of who's course. been special to both of us, a guest on both of our podcasts, but maybe introduce who Aaron is for those who haven't listened to those episodes and maybe talk about what impact he's had on your career. Yeah. Um, Whew. that's hard to distill down, but I guess at a very basic level, uh, Lutzi, as we call him, um, was a long time, uh, very valued employee at Red Bull. Um, he was our, uh, athlete marketing manager for both of ours, um, for a period of time. He was yours for a long time. Yeah. Did you ever have an AMM my, besides? No, Lucy? my entire, wow. uh, my entire career. In fact, they still haven't replaced him. We're, we're waiting for Lutzi's uh, protege to start, but yeah, he was my AMM. Yeah. Well, I would say buckle down potentially because they Red Bull is taking their, their time as they should in replacing yeah. AMMs. I found that out uh, this past year I was out, I was without an AMM for uh, almost exactly a year. I just got my introduced to my new one last week. So it's good that they do due diligence like that, especially yeah. when you know, it's got to be one of the most coveted jobs in all of oh, sports 100%. marketing. Yeah. I had three different people contact me who I either am friends with or like friends of friends with that were applying for the job that would have been my manager. It was like, yeah. Can you put in a word. I was like, uh, <laughs> I guess <laughs> I'll put in a word for this third person. <laughs> Lucy uh, told me that they were expecting between 700 and 1100 applicants for his job. So. Dude. But anyway, is it true that Lutzi was the one who encouraged you to start your own podcast? Oh yeah, for sure. Because it's yeah, the same he, with me. I yeah, I figured as much. And I don't know if he had to work on you as hard as he had to work on me, but I think I told him no like three times, and then finally, I don't know what. Uh, here's to hear what your process was, but what he eventually did um, is he had me write down uh, a list of all of the people that I'd had inspiring conversations with in the last month. He was like, I don't care what the format was, whether you're on a bike ride, whether it was like an email thread, no matter what it was, just write down some names. And so I was like, all right, fine, whatever. Did that. And then he was, he, he took the list and he was, he was like, I intro you to this person, this person, this person, this person. Like you may have only had one conversation briefly on email or IG and think that like, making the leap to asking them to do a podcast is too big, but I promise you it's not. And just look at all of these awesome people you rub shoulders with, like share some of those conversations. And that's finally when I was kind of like, all right, I see what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I so mean, he's he, a clever one, that Lutzi. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. He twisted my arm too, until I had no excuse to not put my money where my mouth was and get this thing off the ground. And it's been a massive source of joy and inspiration for me, as I'm sure your show has been for you. Oh, and yeah. it's positively impacted, I think, both of our professional careers as athletes as well. So I just wanted to give a quick shout out to 
Aaron Lutzi to start, but you know, of course, Payson, this is a trail running audience and <coughs> you may be an unfamiliar name to most of our listeners. Uh, you grew up in Texas. You live in Durango now, but why don't you give us the brief life history of who you are just to set the table for the rest of our conversation? Yeah, sure. Um, I grew up in a very small town, about 20, 30 minutes outside of Austin, Texas. So that's central Texas, the the hill country, as we uh, like to call it. Um, they're very small hills. Uh, but despite that, I found cycling to be a pretty significant childhood passion. At first, it was BMX riding, actually, because that there was a pretty big scene down there for that. Um, and then Lance was winning all the tours, uh, when I was, you know, a kiddo and early teenager. And so that sort of further, further solidified some interest in the endurance side of cycling, but really it was kind of basketball and track and field that I was most interested in, um, middle school and into early high school. Um, but I kept having this recurring knee injury and that sort of, uh, nudged me towards cycling because it was the way that I was going to effectively rehab and, and get back on the basket basketball court or, or get back, you know, on the track or ah. I, there was even one year where I did cross country running. Um, so at about age 14, 15, I just tried, uh, bike racing for the first time actually, and absolutely got waxed by other local <laughs> Texas teenagers. But for whatever reason, it just clicked for me. And it was the thing that I finally really wanted to work hard at. Um, and, and weirdly, man, it's, it's strange to think back on now it's gosh, almost 15 years, um, since that first race when I was, when I was 14 and, um, in hindsight, it's crazy how much I haven't questioned the decision to focus on that. Like not wow. once have I gone, uh, I don't know if this is what I want to do just from literally the first month of deciding that I was interested until now, it's just been Pro full focus. Yeah. So of course you make your living now on the off-road side of the sport. At what point did that become your focus? Were you ever interested in pursuing kind of the European road circuit? Yeah. Great question. Um, I'd say early on I had, uh, as a, as a, you know, 15, 16 year old, I, I tried, um, a little bit of road racing. Um, I had the opportunity to guest ride with the, what was the, the Garmin slipstream development team, um, which is now EF education. Um, for those that, uh, are a little bit familiar with, with cycling, that's a team that does the, they're on the world tour. They do the tour de France every year, that sort of thing. And so I got to, to guest ride with their, their young development program at one point and, had some success at the one race that I did and that sort of created a little bit of interest, but, um, uh, especially back then culturally, there was a very large gulf between what off-road racing was and road cycling. Um, and I just didn't feel personality wise, like I fit into the road scene particularly. Um, it's very, uh, at least at that time it was very much. And I think, I think to a degree it was kind of the, the age group I was, I was in, it was the kids that, you know, we were teenagers, really insecure, um, didn't, doesn't necessarily know the likelihood of making it to the pros. So everyone was very on edge, very focused, and it just didn't feel fun. Um, so that's kind of why I stuck with the side. And then I got another opportunity when a team reached out, um, 
I guess in my early twenties. Um, and, uh, same sort of thing. I was just having too much fun racing mountain bikes and my career was just starting to, to take off you could say. And so, yeah, I just haven't ever really haven't, haven't made that jump. (laughs) Yeah. And so now gravel and mountain biking, there's a lot of crossover between the athletes who Mm -hmm. compete at the highest level. Is that how you would sort of identify yourself as a cyclist now, both as gravel racer and as a mountain biker? Yeah, for sure. It's, it's a little bit funny, uh, what's happened in that regard. Yeah. Um, I want you to talk about that. Yeah. I want you to sort of give us a state of the sport type thing. Yeah. It's really wild. It's, um, even those of us in it are still sort of trying to figure it out, like what's happening because it's all happening so fast. But I guess I would say that the quick synopsis is, um, there is the longstanding traditional format of mountain bike racing, endurance mountain bike racing, which is, um, the world cup series. And that's an Olympic, uh, focused discipline. Uh, it's very, um, very narrow in its scope. Uh, all of the events are very, very similar. I would liken it to track and field. Mm. And I, I, that's kind of the running analogy I would use is, is world cup XC is a bit like track and field. Um, and what I do is, is kind of like ultra running mountain running. Um, and, uh, the, the ultra running trail running equivalent was a very much grassroots, a little bit under the radar thing. The Leadville 100 was big. Um, but there wasn't, there weren't too many other events that got global attention beyond that. Um, and then I'd say around, I don't know, 2015, 2016, um, some of these other events, there started to be some rumblings, and one other thing that's interesting about them is that they're mass participation events. So where the world cup is really well televised on Red Bull TV, um, pros there's only, only pros only, yeah. there's only 150 to 200 people on the start line, um, at unbound Iceman cometh, there's 4,000 to 7,000 people on the start line and the front, you know, separate rows to pros. And then everyone else behind that's just riding to finish. Um, and all of a sudden, I think brands started noticing and then, uh, I don't think anyone has really (laughs) totally under been able to put their finger on it. Why yet? But, um, it just started to take off in popularity and all of a sudden we literally have more of these events than we know what to do with. Um, like I'm having to say no to awesome events because there's just too many. many. Uh, It's the same thing um, in trail running at this point too. There's sort of the saturation, but, and it, I think kind of accelerated at the same exact time that gravel racing did and was also positively impacted by the pandemic. And we can go into that stuff in more detail. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, obviously it is a awesome time to be a professional off-road cyclist. And I want to talk a little bit more about the state of the industry, but also just on a personal level, while we learn a little bit more about you, as uh, we were just talking about before we're pressing record, you and I are both sort of at a bit of a transition moment in our careers. 2022 was sort of a line of demarcation in our approach to our respective sports. And I think we can have a fun conversation about that. So let's open it up by just kind of letting you describe, sort of summarize what sort of changes you've stepped into as a professional cyclist in 2022? What were the decisions that you had to make and uh, 
how do you anticipate your career moving forward? Yeah, I, I guess the biggest one is um, I opted to leave my team. Um, so traditionally in cycling, there's there's teams, you know, anywhere from on the off-road side, that can be anywhere from two riders and two staff to eight or 10 riders and 10 staff, 12 staff. Um, and we were a, a medium small team. Uh, we had typically three to four riders, um, and three to four staff. Um, and that was great for a really long time. Um, actually right up until the end, it was great. Um, still an awesome team. They've got a great squad. Um, but I, uh, I guess I started to get to the point where, um, my, <laughs> this gets into a whole other conversation, but <laughs> I have a lot of, tr- <laughs> I have a lot of trouble and I think you'll be able to relate to this. I have a lot of trouble turning off the creative side of my brain. And so along with all this racing stuff, um, I've more and more been doing, uh, dreaming up all kinds of off kilter, you know, out of left field ideas. So whether that be, um, the ride across Iceland that I did, or, you know, the white rim fastest known time or riding all of Bentonville's trails in a day, these are pretty non-traditional things that, um, being a solo outfit, uh, are more suited to. Um, just from a business standpoint. Um, and I also had some opportunities with some new sponsors that, uh, sort of necessitated becoming an individual. So also in, in, on, on the off-road side of racing, it, it gets kind of blurry because even though, you know, people, people love to use the privateer sort of moniker, which is like, you're an individual act, um, which is the case for me, but on, at the, at the same point, you know, I'll have two to three staff with me at every event. So we're still sort of like a team and I rely very heavily on infrastructure, but as a, as a single rider. So it's sort of a, it kind of goes back to the whole gravel and off-road racing scene in general right now, where there's just so much ambiguity and no one, there's no structure. Like yeah. no one knows there's no minimum wage. There's no, minimum number of riders required. Like some riders are on teams, some are not on teams. It's just kind of all over the place, which is exciting, but also confusing at times. Dude, it's the exact same thing in trail running. So (laughs) to summarize the difference between being on the orange seal off-road team, which is sort of like the factory racing model versus being a privateer. It just is the difference between being part of an organized group of riders an organized team versus being an individual athlete who's responsible for the support system around you more or less. Right. Yeah. Cool. Totally. Did it feel like a cleanest way to put it? Did it feel (laughs) like a a risky move to you? Like, did you agonize over the decision or was it a total no brainer as we move towards this conversation, your new sponsors? Um, so I did this in 2014 when I was much younger, much less experienced, really had little to no results to my name. And it was much more out of necessity, sort of, uh, I was just out of a team. I had ridden for a team for a couple of years. Um, and then, uh, basically the team folded very late in the year and I wasn't able to, to, to get on a team in time going into, I guess it was 2014. I can't remember if it was 2014 or 2015. So I did the solo thing for a year um, and then had some good rides that year and, and ended up 
going back to team structure the following years. So I say that to say I have some history with it. It's very different this time around um, for a whole bunch of reasons. Of course, there's nervousness. Like anytime there's change, there's going to be some nervousness there, but mostly it's excitement. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about the mechanic we hired, for example. Um, I'm going to get to have my fiance, Nicole, along much more frequently, which is unusual in cycling, you know, in the world tour that basically never happens and world cup mountain bike basically never happens. But, you know, I want to share these really special years with loved ones and ultimately the best, most, uh, holistic way to do that was to in part involve her in this program. And you proposed to her recently too. You got yeah. That's yeah, pretty yeah, awesome. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, again, it's just like me and my career and in trail running in general, Harmony travels with me to almost every race that I do. And she's a critical part of my quote unquote team. We don't need mechanics usually, but yeah, yeah, yeah. B- body mechanics. I'm jealous of, I'm jealous of, I mean, y'all's logistics are totally insane, <laughs> but in terms of equipment, that's a lot simpler. And I'm Minimal. pretty, boy, yeah. we're going through order forms right now and it's just mind boggling. Yeah, yeah. Just the sheer number of like, all right, we need this bolt that's this length and this diameter for this one bike, but we need three different ones for the five other bikes. It's just like, it's, oh my God. I'm so glad I don't have to deal with that. Well, on on the subject of equipment, this was potentially the biggest news that you made in this sort of transition between 21 and 22, in that you moved from Trek, one of the name brand big cycling institutions to what seems to be a really cool brand in allied cycling based down in Arkansas. Talk about that decision specifically, because it's sort of a similar thing with my career again, where going from a big established brand to a small kind of upstart scrappy, really cool new, uh, new company. So talk about that. Yeah. Boy. So you asked me earlier whether I was nervous about making uh, this transition and overall the answer was no, but this decision between Trek and allied was, I mean, it sounds dumb and like such a privileged thing to say, but potentially the hardest decision of my life, at least that's how it felt at the moment. I mean, depending on the side of the bed, I woke up on for three months straight. I changed my mind basically since, you know, early August, uh, through late October, I just, went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And I think one of the things that was so hard is that they were both really, really good options, but they were so different. Um, I have incredible longstanding friendships at Trek and, you know, ultimately that is what was giving me second thoughts about leaving so much is just really strong ties I have with that brand. And one thing I will say about Trek that, has really impressed me over the years is, uh, their retention. Like they have very, very little turnover. I mean, to go into the offices there and, and say hi to someone that's been at the brand for 27, 31 years is not unusual. Um, that said allied at the time felt like, uh, a big risk, but also something that had massive upside. Now that the decision is, is in the rear view, I realized that it's actually not all that <laughs> high risk and it is just super high upside. Um, like you said, they're small. Um, despite being small, they're in a pretty unusual situation in that they, 
um, have really significant investment um, from Tom and Stu Walton, um, who are the the guys behind uh, really the explosion of Bentonville in regards to cycling. Um, they went out and purchased Rafa as well and have just really invested heavily in cycling. So Allied's in a, a very um, favorable position um, in terms of being a, a startup of sorts. Yeah. And they're also doing some really interesting things in regards to um, uh, just the, the basic ethos of the, like the founding tenets of their brand, which is 100% made in the U S um, really awesome uh, social mindedness in regards to solid pay um, benefits, you know, not, uh, not taking advantage of the traditional outsourcing of manufacturing to Taiwan, which is the, the traditional route for cycling. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've also been uh, able to go out and poach top talent from all the other biggest bike brands. So like their lead engineer was at specialized for 11 years. That's the guy who you just um, had on your podcast, right? Exactly. Shout him exactly. out. What, what was his name again? Sam Pickman. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, The thing that really stuck out to me in that podcast before I let you keep going and brag about this cool sponsor, (laughs) he, after working at specialized for so long, he was describing how he, they would travel to China to keep their eye on the manufacturing process and the supply chain. And then as the middle-class grew in China, prices went up. So they're like, okay, now we have to go to Cambodia or to, Thailand or wherever the other, the next country was where they could squeeze that extra margin out of the manufacturing process. And he was like, there must be a better way. And then went, go over to allied. And as you said, make it all in the U S treat the employees, right. Have more control over the manufacturing process and the supply chain with less risk. And ultimately the product becomes a lot better. Has that been sort of your experience? Absolutely. And, and one other thing that really, uh, caught my attention is that they, because they're smaller, um, they, uh, and also I think just because of the people they hired they're in large part, they kind of ignore industry trends and instead take a very objective look at actual product development from the standpoint of what is going to be the absolute best performing bike. And on top of that, um, they're a premium brand, so exclusively a premium brand. So they're not making, you know, bikes at a three hundred dollar price point that a kiddo is going to ride for the first time. Just to move um, volume, yeah. Just to move volume, because I mean, if you look around at some of the biggest bike brands, like their flagship twelve thousand dollar, thirteen thousand dollar race bike is is not their bread and butter. Their bread and butter is the nine hundred and fifty dollar commuter. Yeah. Or the $800, you know, beginner hardtail mountain bike, which is awesome. Obviously we need those bikes. Um, but allied not being in that business allows them to focus fully on making the best racing bicycle ever and put all of their resources into that. Um, and then also from my, from my standpoint, um, I'm able to have a very direct relationship with all of those engineers um, even, you know, right down to the CEO, um, because I just fall much higher in the, in the athlete hierarchy there. I mean, sure. it, it was hard for me to, uh, have as big an impact at Trek, you know, when they have literally the current Olympic champion, world champion, um, you know, their Trek Segafredo team that races the tour every year. So 
like I said, it was super different, but there's just loads of upside and, and really the, the product development side of things was one of the things that uh, really caught my attention as well. In terms of upside, this may be too personal a question, but do you, do you feel like more of a partner in the brand? Like, do they give you guys upside in the actual core business? Like, do you get options in the company? So that was something we fought for very aggressively (laughs) was equity for sure. Um, And actually, so going backwards for one second, um, one of the reasons, one of the things that emboldened me to make this decision um, was looking outside the sport, looking at other sports. And that's something I try to do very regularly. And so one thing that caught my attention was uh, Simone Biles and Allison Felix leaving Nike. And dude, you and I, I seriously think identically keep going. <laughs> yeah. So I was, I was like, you know what, if these two are willing to do this, if they're willing to walk away from freaking Nike, I can probably walk away <laughs> and, and go in a new direction as well. So, um, uh, without, you know, I've got NDAs and stuff, sure, but yeah. without, with, without, uh, giving too much away, I, I have, I have skin in the game to an extent. Uh, I get, I, I will share an allied success to an extent, okay. you know, cool. I, I can't, I won't elaborate on like the details of that, but that was definitely a piece of the puzzle. Cool. Sure. Well, yeah. yeah. Thanks for, you know, at least giving us a little glimpse. And I think that is so important. And I think it is the wave of the future for athletes. More and yep. more people like you and I will move to smaller upstarts who make great product where we can have a direct influence on what goes to market and have a deeper connection and feel a deeper loyalty to the brand. The other thing yep. that you guys talked about in that podcast that I'm curious to hear you elaborate on is this off-road cycling scene in Arkansas. It feels like mm. this is like the hot spot or the current epicenter of the sport, at least in North America. Can you give us a glimpse into what the culture's like there down in Arkansas? Cause it's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? It is, it is. Um, and you know, it's, um, it is very counterintuitive. One thing I will say is, so I, I was somewhat skeptical before I traveled there because of what I assumed to be a lack of terrain. Um, I sort of thought, you know what, if, if, if this is going to be a true cycling Mecca, there's got to be some topography. Right. Um, I was like, you know, Arkansas really, but the truth of the matter is Northwest Arkansas is pretty darn mountainous. I was really surprised by that. Um, kind of sneaky mountainous. So yes, they do have, I mean, we're not talking the Rocky mountains that you and I are familiar with, but there are mountains there. Um, and then also, uh, just if there's one thing I've learned over the years, really, what makes a, a, a culture special, uh, whether it be cycling, I have to assume the same with running, um, are the people in the place. Like, it's great if there's awesome terrain, but I've been plenty of places where there are stunning mountains and it's just kind of lifeless culturally for, for cycling. Um, and then you'll go other places. I mean, Austin, Texas comes to mind, you know, Austin doesn't have the most insane terrain for cycling, but the cycling scene is off the charts. And there's a lot of factors for that, but, um, whether it be Austin or whether it be Bentonville, it's, uh, key stakeholders having belief in it being a place that can have a true, you know, be a true cycling epicenter. Um, 
And so that's really what's happened in Bentonville and people are just flocking there. I mean, it's every time I go, I mean, (laughs) at this point, kind of like you alluded to, I have a bunch of events there every year, but I now have two sponsors based there as well. And so I'm back there probably six times a year at this point. And even though those trips may only be separated by a couple of months each time, I see change. Yeah. It's, it's wild. Wow. The, the, the steepness of the it's, curve. It's there. sort of like the, if you build it, they will come philosophy, isn't it? hundred percent. Yeah. Awesome. And we've sort of jokingly, you know, talked about getting a place there and it's more and more frequently becoming less of a joke and probably more of just a matter of time. <laughs> but I think, I think we need to hustle up cause it's like, it's quickly becoming yeah. priced, priced like a, a Durango or, or, a you know, an Aspen or something like that. Cool. Yeah. I'd love to actually make a trip down there myself and take some of those trails for a spin in shoes rather than on a bike. And maybe we could grow a little trail running culture there too. So. Oh yeah, for sure. I, I, one thing I've noticed is kind of like we talked about these, these parallel universes, there frequently is some crossover. Like that's one thing that honestly, it drives me crazy about Durango. Like I, I keep hearing about these badass runners that live in Durango. And I'm like, how do I not know that person? (laughs) Or how have we not like fist bumped at a restaurant one night? Like, I know we're just like doing this, like we're in similar orbits. Um, but it, I don't, yeah, it confuses me that there's not one Let's talk about that a little bit more because we're sort of talking about it in relationship to Bentonville. And that is the importance of community and training partners to get better as an athlete. And you being from central Texas was part of the reason that you moved to Durango to be more connected to other strong riders who could push you to get better. Because I know that there's sort of a community that's built there of other professional cyclists. What's, uh, what's that sort of competitive environment like? And do you guys all help to kind of push each other to the next level? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's almost hard to put into words what the cycling scene is here in Durango. And there's a lot of reasons for it, but, um, I really like to try to adhere to the idea that if you want to get better, um, being the worst in the room now and then is, is a really good practice. I think it's healthy and it's inevitable that you get better at whatever it is. So, um, for in the United States, if you want to be a, uh, high level is mountain biker specifically. Um, but increasingly so just any kind of off-road racer or, or even, well, that's not even true. Any sort of endurance cyclist. Cause we, you know, I mean, Sepp Coos is from here. He was the first American to win a stage of the Tour de France Stud. Uh, in, in like 10 years. He did it last year. Yeah. Quinn's another incredible up and coming athlete also in the world tour. I think there's like, I don't know, six or eight Americans in the world tour right now. And two of them are from Durango. And it's about to be three. Um, and that's just on the road side. And then on the mountain bike side of things, on the results sheet at any given off-road event, it doesn't matter if it's a cross country or a marathon or a gravel race. Um, on any given weekend, anywhere in the country, probably five out of the top 10 are from Durango. Wow. Um, yeah. And so I, and it's always been that way ever since, you know, Ned Overend and John Tomac and, Missy Giovi and all these legends of the sport moved here in the late eighties, early nineties. And then Durango hosted the first ever mountain bike world championships in 1990. Ever since then, it's just been this incredible cycle that feeds itself. 
And then you've got the collegiate team, the Fort Lewis College collegiate cycling team, which has been the top cycling team over the last 20 some odd years. Um, I mean, <laughs> to put it to, I'll, here's a really good way to put it also. Um, in, in cross country mountain biking, typically there are one to two athletes selected for the Olympics every cycle. Durango has never missed the selection. <laughs> 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 good track record yeah <laughs> yeah so for what that's worth so anyway yeah good that's why i moved live. here that's where I'm, why i moved here and it doesn't matter it doesn't matter how good my fitness is um you know if there's always someone to push you here awesome. and uh in a realistic way as well there are very few egos in the cycling scene because they i mean people just know there's not room for it like yeah. all the best riders are here so and you guys are friendly with each other it's just like trail running awesome yeah the free trail podcast is brought to you by gnarly nutrition are you guys training for your next big race has the 2022 season started yet well gnarly nutrition gets it they know where you're at because this is a team filled with mountain sport athletes just like you and i and with a full line of nsf certified products that are natural effective and delicious Gnarly knows what it takes to cross the finish line. So when you are planning your training nutrition, organizing your crew support and drop bags, or thinking about your post-run recovery, I would encourage you to reach for Gnarly Nutrition. You guys have heard me talk about the Fuel 2.0 drink mix a lot. I also love the Gnarly BCAAs. I have come to learn that branch chain amino acids are critical to muscle health and muscle recovery. And honestly, I've noticed a big difference in my recovery since I started using this drink mix on pretty much a daily basis. So check out the Gnarly BCAAs, check out the Fuel 2.0, go visit gonarly.com, use code FREETRAIL15 for 15% off your order. gonarly.com, FREETRAIL15. FREETRAIL is grateful to have the support of Inside Tracker. As trail runners, you understand what it means to push harder, reach farther, and go the extra mile. This relentless drive runs in your blood, literally and figuratively. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build endurance, boost energy, and optimize your health for the long haul. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, the right nutrition, the right supplementation for you and your unique body. It's a really great tool to see where you're optimized and where you're not, where you can improve. And if you're a Garmin user like myself, you can connect Inside Tracker to your device to unlock real time recovery tips after completing your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist in your pocket. I did my Inside Tracker blood test a few days ago. It was super easy, a totally seamless experience at the testing center. I'm waiting on the results now. I'm really excited to get those back, learn from it, share the results with you all, and let you know how I'm gonna change my behavior, my training, my nutrition as a result of what we learn. You should do this too, honestly, it's really cool. It's a really important thing to just check in on yourself every once in a while 
And for a limited time, you can take advantage of the special offer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Basically, take advantage of the test that I just took as well. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash free trail to take advantage of this 20% offer. There's a link in the show notes, but insidetracker.com forward slash free trail. Let's uh, go back and talk a little bit more about the state of the cycling industry, just because I like to talk about this stuff. And I think you can provide a unique point of observation. As we talked about earlier, the industry's kind of been booming, especially during the pandemic and afterwards. And But much of that growth has come from your side of the sport, from the gravel scene, from mountain biking. And it feels like a very special moment in this particular uh, sort of subcategory of cycling in general. Um, talk about on the professional level, how things are developing. And there have been a few examples of people like Ted King, who have sort of a European grand tour background who are now racing professionally in your side of the sport. Similar things are happening in running where people are opting instead of going the road marathon track route, instead sort of focusing on trail and ultra running where, you know, again, the subcategory is growing at a explosive clip. So yeah, anywhere you want to take that, I'd love for you to just provide your perspective on the professional end of the gravel and mountain biking side of the sport. Yeah, it's, uh, boy, it's kind of complicated, but, um, I think sort of, um, one of the simplest ways to summarize it is, uh, thanks to, thanks to a bunch of things coming together, athletes are now able to carve out a brand for themselves that's of extremely high value um, and almost become an, an entity unto themselves that's, that, that goes beyond just uh, being an individual athlete, if that makes sense. So, um, you know, it sounds a little cliche, but it could be anything from a podcast to a YouTube series, you know, very, very tried and true methods over the years. But when you combine that with um, winning races, um, it, it starts to be a pretty interesting collection of ingredients that, that brands seem to find extreme value in. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's kind of gotten to a point where I don't think anyone, uh, probably very few people expected it, but I think when you started to kind of hear rumblings and, and those of us that are, uh, you know, talk amongst ourselves, we started to sort of understand the opportunities and sort of what the, the landscape was starting to look like, but the, uh, the media hadn't really caught on yet. Mm. Um, and there was this funny moment, um, I guess two years ago, late 2019 going into 2020, uh, where a really good friend of mine and someone you're familiar with too, Colin Strickland, also a Red Bull athlete. Mm -hmm. Uh, he'd won unbound, uh, that year, which is the, the biggest gravel event for us. That's like the UTMB and, of gravel just for yeah. our listeners who are trail yeah. running minded. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, he, you know, he posted his, his ride on Strava and, um, some of the, so in, in cycling, we have power meters so you can see, um, power output and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's not an end all be all yardstick because there are differences in power meters and it's very reliant on an athlete's weight, all that sort of thing. But, um, T 
teams, especially world tour teams, you know, pay a lot of attention to those metrics. And so there were a couple of teams that took note of Colin's power numbers. <laughs> wow. And, uh, and, and sure enough, um, he got a call from Jonathan Botters, who's the uh, team principal at um, EF Education, um, one of the world tour teams that does the Tour de France and Paris-Roubaix every year and all that sort of thing. And he called Colin and he was like, hey, if I can guarantee you a start spot in Paris-Roubaix, which is the most famous one-day one day classic, classic in uh in cycling history it's been around for like 125 years or something um if i can guarantee you a star spot in perry roubaix next year would you consider riding for us and that's like i'm trying to think of an analogy but it's 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 uh for it's like a cyclist if you could play augusta if you're a casual golfer kind of thing but yeah but or i mean it's, it's it, if you're a site i'll put it to you this way if you pan if you surveyed a bunch of cyclists and said um you have three options. You can race the Tour de France, you can race Perry Roubaix, or you can go to the Olympics. Probably 50 would say the Tour de France, 40 would say Perry Roubaix, and 10 would say go to the Olympics. Okay. Thank you. Um, and 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 so anyway, Colin was super intrigued. They started, I know I'm kind of going on a tangent here, but I think it's a good illustration. No, this is great. They started getting into numbers and Colin was going to have to take like a 50 plus percent pay cut um, to ride in the world tour. And granted, this is like a, this is a, this is not, he, he was being offered a contract of a, of a newer level pro, like not a pro that's won a bunch of races. Yeah. But point is he was still going to have to take a really significant pay cut. And so he had this insanely agonizing decision. Do I follow childhood dreams? like the dream of 99% of people that sling a leg over a bicycle. Do I follow that route and put money aside, um, money considerations aside for a few years, or do I do the thing that I know I love that's super fun and gravel racing, um, and have a better financial situation. And he decided to go that route. And he said, he turned down a world tour offer and basically a guaranteed spot in Roubaix. And when he did that and news got out, everyone went insane. Like people's wow, heads exploded. What like a the moment media, for the sport. Yeah. The media was like, Oh my God. Okay. What is actually going on here? And I think that's when journalists started thinking, like started prying a little more like, okay, how much, how much can a rider actually earn doing this weird, like redheaded stepchild of cycling? Um, and what else is going on here from a cultural standpoint that is making riders really gravitate towards this, this other style. Incredible. So, have you yeah. had Colin on to talk about that on your show? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I got to go back and listen to that now. Sweet. It was, it was a pretty good while ago. I think it was, uh, actually, you know what? I don't know that we, I don't know that we really did a deep dive on it. He and I sort of beat around the bush because okay. he was, well, now you have he had to do almost it. made his decision. But I know. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll reach out to him too. Anyway, yeah. let's, uh, let's talk about the lifetime Grand Prix because again, this is another, I think huge validation of the gravel side of the cycling category. And again, something that you talked about recently on your podcast, summarize what the lifetime Grand Prix is and what role you had in advising them. Yeah. So this is a, this is a pretty interesting one, depending on who you ask with different opinions, but um, up until this year, uh, this off-road scene was sort of a, a collection of a whole bunch of individual events. There was no overall point series. Um, so 
basically what Lifetime did is they they have this really incredible portfolio of events now that includes Unbound, Leadville 100, um, Big Sugar in Bentonville. They just bought the Sea Otter Classic, bunch of bunch of the biggest events, and they decided to uh, pick six of them: three mountain bike, three gravel, and put them into a season long series, six six stop series. Um, they, uh, put some sweet prize money up. Um, there's going to be awesome coverage. Sort of the very unexpected wrinkle they put in though, is that they capped the number of participants. So there'll be 30 men and 30 women that are participating in this Grand Prix series. Um, and that's where they've received a decent amount of, uh, criticism, um, because it, it automatically makes a little bit of a, an exclusive sort of situation. Um, to clarify, anyone that wants to do any of those individual events still can, but there are only 30 pro men and 30 pro women that will be counted for this point series okay. chase. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of what happened is all of a sudden we have our own little World Cup series in a way, um, but they're modeling it much more after, say, like an F1 type series and actually when they were developing the idea it's brilliant uh, it's brilliant yeah as an avid watcher of drive to survive (laughs) on netflix exactly so that's what the 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 head guy chemo um had all of his employees watch all of the drive to survive series as homework so yeah that's what we're doing (laughs) yeah well it's really cool and it seems like it's different distances different geographies different course types so it seems like it favors a well-rounded rider all the races in are in north america is the gravel scene also evolving and growing in the same way over in europe where obviously the road cycling and grand tour scene has always reigned supreme yeah good question um so i think gravel cycling wasn't taken too seriously by the global governing body, the, the UCI union cycling international up until, you know, folks like Colin started turning on tracks and some other things happened. And then all of a sudden they're like, Whoa, uh, seems like lifetime's making a lot of money. And it seems like there are a lot of cyclists that are interested in this. And then all of a sudden, uh, bike brands just couldn't keep gravel bikes in stock. And, and to this day, um, I mean, the sales of gravel bikes are just running circles around all the other bike categories. Of course, the UCI you know, wants a wants a piece of that pie. Um, so they've they've kind of tried with starts and stops to get a, a UCI gravel series going. Um, I'm not exactly sure why, but it seems like they keep kind of hitting roadblocks. Um, they just recently announced a, a series of gravel. Um, with a bunch of events I've never heard of. A lot of them are over in Europe. Um, we'll see if that takes off. Um, I have, I have nothing against UCI gravel, um, but it'll be interesting to see how different it is than, than what's happening now. That said, there are some really cool, more traditional style sort of grassroots oriented gravel events globally that I'm getting more and more interested in. Um, there's one in Wales that I like to do. Uh, there's a pretty cool one in Japan. Um, so there's a few, but it's, it's kind of tough. I mean, the way I'm looking at it right now is it's sort of like, you know, mountain biking, the mountain bike world cup is like F1 and gravel is like NASCAR and they're just two different things. Yeah. And there's all this talk of like, how do they coexist? And like, what are we doing? And 
doesn't USA Cycling and the UCI need to be the umbrella organization all, over all of this? And it's like, not really. Like we can have MLS soccer and we can have FIFA soccer. Like it's, it's fine for there to be two options here. <laughs> Dude, the same arguments again are happening in trail running. That's at so this funny. particular moment in the sports history. So it's, I think so much, uh, yeah, so much in common. There's so much, there's so many parallels between what you're doing and what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, kind of on that subject, I'd love to sort of transition to s- kind of talk about being a 21st century professional athlete, because I think you've choreographed your career in a really thoughtful and effective way. And not only being a great athlete, but having this media career in parallel with your athletic career. Um, I wanted to sort of open the door to this conversation by talking about your Icelandic crossing, which you referenced a little (laughs) bit earlier. Explain what that was. How'd you come up with the idea and maybe just explain how it all manifested? Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's flattering when, when people, compliment the the grand plan I have in regards to my career but the truth is I don't have one like I'm literally playing whack-a-mole with ideas and half the time feeling totally overwhelmed by keeping up with my own ideas my own obligations um and it's it's a very fun career but it can be you know for being a professional recreator it's amazing how stressful I can make it sometimes <laughs> um but yeah you know the the Iceland thing um, the white rim FKT, like I mentioned earlier, some of these different ideas, they very much were, um, I think by some people they're viewed as like, uh, almost like some sort of stunt that's marketable, but more and more they've become something that I need. Uh, I, I love traditional racing very much, but I don't know that I'd still be in the sport if that was my only outlet. Um, uh, I, I just have to have these exploratory missions that really get in my comfort zone. Um, so every time, every time I do one of these things, they get a little more, uh, a little more aggressive, a little more ambitious. Um, Iceland definitely, you know, took things to another level personally and, and sort of recalibrated my, um, uh, sort of my, uh, I guess what's possible. Um, but the way that came about is, uh, uh, a good friend of mine, a, a big cyclist and very successful photographer, Chris Burkhard, uh, had just pioneered a new, uh, 700 mile bike touring route in the West Fjords region of Iceland, which is kind of the Northwestern quadrant. It's sort of like this, this, uh, hand sort of looking peninsula out on the Northwestern corner of, of Iceland. Um, one of the most rural, most sparsely populated places in the world. Um, and he'd put together this incredible bike touring route, uh, with the, the humble, but stalwart tourism board of the West Fjords <laughs> and, uh, great group of people. And he asked one day whether I'd be interested in, in going out there and riding this route, um, just at a, a casual pace and, uh, documenting it and, and kind of bringing some awareness to this region um, because the tourism situation in Iceland is pretty interesting in that they, I mean, tourism is, is the majority of their economic lifeline. Um, but it's almost entirely confined to the coastal areas and especially the Southern areas, you know, people come from all over the world to go visit the volcano that's been erupting to go, you know, see the, the ice beaches 
um, all kinds of stuff like that. But very few people make the trek up to the northern West Fjords and virtually no one goes into the interior, mm-hmm. which is just like, we'll get into that, but it's just like this godforsaken <laughs> lunar thingness. Um, it makes total sense that people don't go there. But anyway, the Iceland as a whole is trying to promote uh, tourism throughout the island just to kind of disperse the, the impact a little bit. So that's kind of mission A. Um, because I, I have uh, such a rigorous race schedule, I, I wasn't 100% committing to the idea and was sort of waffling on him. And then finally he was like, all right, dude, I get it. You need some sort of competitive second phase of the trip. Let's brainstorm. Like, let's figure something out for you that will seal the deal. <laughs> like you can go do some race thing while there. Um, and so we started throwing around some different fastest known time ideas and that sort of thing. And um, I, I still don't remember who had the first light bulb moment, but I just started or we started looking at Iceland and we we're like, you know what? North to South, this thing's only 260 miles. Um, we know that the interior, Chris has ridden all across Iceland through the interior multiple times, all that sort yeah. of thing. So he's very familiar with it, but the interior is like not a place you want to be. It's, it's, a uh, it's hard to describe how otherworldly it is. I mean, it's straight up Mordor. Like you have, you have sand, you have, volcanoes and you have glaciers Mm -hmm. that's it there is no life in the interior it's one of the most volcanically active places um and to get across you have to be a semi-psycho hiker bike rider or in some sort of like mega overland vehicle with a guide okay so very few people go into the interior so that makes that 250 miles north to south way more of a sketchy 250 miles. Um, but it also sounded absolutely insane and really exciting. So we started putting together the most direct route and just thought, you know, can, can someone do this in a single push? Can someone ride coast to coast across the entire Island one go without taking a nap, without, you know, any sort of caches, like food caches without any papers, um, Fully self-supported. Yeah. Clip in, go, get to the other coast. Um, so anyway, that's that was the mission yeah. we we set out to do. And, and mission accomplished. It was, it was, it was life-changing. It. I questioned everything multiple times. We had to change the route 12 hours before because uh, a thermal vent opened up and melted a glacier and like wiped out the original route. <laughs> like Iceland threw everything at us, but um, it was uh, yeah, the best thing I've ever done. Yeah, it's so cool. And you guys documented it really well in a video that I'll link to in the show notes. And it just made me think that similar to trail running again with these parallels, obviously there's a vibrant competitive side of the sport, but the adventurous FKT side of the sport has also become very, very important. Again, this was something that was supported by the unfortunate COVID pandemic. Yeah. But I think it does give athletes like you and I, as well as the casual participators and people who are doing it, you know, with, for the love rather than for competition or for trophies or for media attention or whatever, a few unique ways that they can approach a sport and uh, a few different sort of um, avenues to challenge themselves. So I guess talking a little bit more about your athletic career, maybe meditate a little bit on 
what value you've seen in starting this media side of your professional life, how it supported you as a competitive athlete, and maybe some things that you've learned, some value you've taken from the podcast and other things that you work on? Yeah, um, good question. I think that's something that's you know evolving for me every year in terms of how I look at it. But uh, I guess starting with the podcast, because that's the most... Um, it's the uh, easiest one to explain. Um, I think one of the reasons I was resistant to it at the beginning was a, I felt like everyone had one. Um, and B it felt like a somewhat of a, a selfish vocation, you know, when, um, when you're out there promoting yourself through results or cool films or social media, I didn't really want to add yet another self-promotion platform. Um, and the, the fear of that being what the podcast would turn out to be really, uh, made it so that from day one, I was very, very motivated to minimize my voice in it, <laughs> if that makes sense. Sure. And because of that <clears throat> original mindset, it's been a very close second to bike riding in general as the most fulfilling thing I do. Um, the opportunity to learn from other people, uh, have an excuse to almost speed date in a way like really roll up your sleeves and get to know someone over the course of an hour long conversation is a far cooler experience than I ever expected. Um, and the chance to, elevate other people, um, really caught me by surprise in terms of how fulfilling it would be personally. So, um, I, I would love to do the podcast after I'm done racing. Um, it's something that I wish I had more time to dedicate to, cause there are plenty of crazy ideas we have in terms of expanding the podcast that I, I would love more hours in the day to, to actually act on. But, you know, overall, um, I would just say, kind of part one is, uh, yes, it's, it's given significant professional opportunities, but it's also provided some balance that at the time I didn't really know that I needed, but now has, I think really created longevity for the other aspects of the career. The film stuff, um, is also another outlet that has really, um, I think added a dimension to my day to day that is a healthy outlet because I've always been, drawn to creativity. Um, and cycling doesn't necessarily always, uh, leave room for that. And it's traditional. <laughs> um, but coming up with a storyline, like storyboarding, um, providing feedback on the editing process, helping select music, um, all that sort of thing is, uh, is really, really fulfilling. Um, and there's a period of time where I kind of batted around the idea of doing like a YouTube series type thing where uh, videos were, were pretty frequent, you know, like a once a month type thing. And quickly I decided to go for quality over quantity. So we only put at maximum like two out a year, um, but they're, you know, higher budget and many month processes. Um, so yeah, I guess those are kind of the two main things that I feel like have obviously yeah. there's been huge payoff professionally but personally, they've added some balance that I think is is making me want to stick with this line of work for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. And I think good advice for 
aspiring pro athletes and how to build a career, how to be more than an athlete, how to deliver more value to your sponsors. So a couple final questions for you before I let you go here, Payson. What's the biggest breakthrough you've had in your career? Was there ever like a point of inflection where you recognized you had crossed a threshold and you were achieving your dreams? Um, yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, it's, uh, I guess the first thing I'd say is that I, I don't know that I've ever been the most talented athlete. And so my, my, like physically, um, I think if, if I have any athletic gifts, it's mostly more from like a grit standpoint and a, a commitment standpoint. But, um, for that reason, I've, I think I've had to be a little bit more patient with the development of like the actual athletic side. Um, I mean, not to try to like fabricate some sort of, uh, like big, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, I'm blanking on the word. I, I, there, to an extent, there were things stacked against me, I guess. Like I had a lot going for me being a white male automatically puts you in an advantageous position. Uh, I had, I have a wonderful family background, but growing up in central Texas with a very minimal, um, mountain bike culture, uh, at, at a, you know, a higher professional level, like as soon, I'll put it this way. As soon as I moved to the mountains, I had massive deficiencies as an athlete. Okay. And I was surrounded by kiddos that, um, had been riding with Olympians since they were 12 years old. And I had a lot of catching up to do. And for that reason, results were very flash in the pan early on. Like I'd pop off uh, a really promising result and then have a dry spell for like nine months. And that was super frustrating and really tested my resolve. And it was tough to see other people my age finding consistency more quickly, um, uh, you know, getting opportunities sooner, all that sort of thing. So I say all that to say that I don't know that there was a major inflection point um, in terms of career changing. I guess when I won my first uh, professional national title, that was sort of like an inflection point for sure. Um, but you know, even that was sort of like sandwiched between other successes. So it's not, um, there was no like mega breakthrough. It's just sort of been an accumulation of, of successes over time. The process. Um, Yeah. Dude, you're better at saying things succinctly than I am. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so bad being long winded. (laughs) No, it's the life of a podcaster, right? We just, we're talkers. Well, yeah, yeah. So we're just, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Final question for you sort of in a similar vein, but the opposite, what's the biggest mistake you've made as a professional athlete and what'd you learn from it or a big failure or some really hard moment that ultimately made you better? Mm. I've never thought about that. Um, we're getting philosophical here. Payson. No, that's good. That's good. How long am I allowed to pause here? That's <laughs> we, can, we can edit it. Yeah. <laughs> um, as soon as I say something, I'm going to, and, and then we're done. I'm going to be like, no, I thought of one. <laughs> there had um, to have been some moment of adversity where you crash or you dropped oh, out or you got I mean, injured. I think that's, that's, that's probably why I'm, I'm pausing so okay. much. 
because there's been so many of those, but, um, uh, it's, it's sort of, it's not a specific moment, but it's kind of like the, uh, finally accepting that I wasn't cut out to be a world cup racer. Mm. Um, and I went through a long phase of kind of really questioning that decision because it, it, really was the traditional path and there were few opportunities outside it when I decided to go a different route. <clears throat> and then, you know, very fortunately the kind of the world came to us, but, um, in regards to this whole gravel thing and everything that we've been talking about, but I mean, I, I, my late teens and early twenties going to Europe, um, you know, most of the time still not living in Colorado coming from central Texas, trying to be competitive, at the world cup and just having so many deficiencies as an athlete, like being so behind the eight ball in terms of riding steep switchbacks or riding in the mud or climbing or, you know, just how cutthroat starts are with 150 other pros and you're a 19 year old kid. Um, and it was so frustrating. And I, I definitely questioned things over and over. Um, and finally I just realized, you know, I'm not, I'm not having fun. And if I'm not having fun at 19, um, this is a problem. This is probably not the ticket. And so uh, I've told this story way too many times, but it really, if there was one inflection point, I guess this was it. it um, I, uh, I had about $3,500 to my name. I was a senior in college and uh, this random race promoter in Mongolia reached out and was like, Hey man, I'm doing this, this Italian guy. I have this six day stage race in Mongolia called the Mongolia bike challenge. And we'd love to, to have you out. If you can get yourself here, we'll cover all your expenses once you're in Mongolia. Um, but a round trip flight was like, you know, $2,600. Um, so I, I spent 2,600 of my $3,500 to get to Mongolia. Had never really done a race like this and, um, had the time of my life. Uh, there were a couple of good world cup racers there who, I could not go to toe to toe with on the world cup, um, who I was able to in this format. And, uh, I ended up winning the thing. Um, and that was a real light bulb moment where I realized, okay, a, this was like 1000 times more fun and B I'm way better at it. Like it's okay to, to fail yeah. and realize that there's something that you're more suited to. And that you enjoy more and that you're going to be more motivated to pursue. Um, and, you know, down the road after some physiological testing and that sort of thing, I realized that, yeah, physically I'm way more suited to this style of racing and absolutely beating my head against the wall at the world cup, uh, had a lot of factors, but part of it was just physiological. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's very fortuitous. I, I think so much of success, no matter the, no matter the, uh, realm, um, can be traced back to timing. And I'm wow. in a very fortunate position right now because the global cycling world has decided to come to us in regards to this racing format. And, you know, very few days go by where I don't feel grateful for that because, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a great time to be doing what we're doing. And, uh, it felt like a failure at, at, at you know, late teenage, early, early twenties. Um, but now, you know, I, uh, it's the best job it's the perfect in the world. Place. Well, yeah. what a fantastic realization and what a great endorsement for the concept of betting on yourself, putting $2,600 <laughs> 
70, <laughs> whatever, 70% of your net worth on the line oh my God. and yeah, going and having cheap. this major realization and this major success and launching you in a new trajectory. What a great place to end. Well, Payson, dude, it's so fun to chat. We've been texting each other back and forth, trying to schedule this for weeks. I'm so glad we yeah. got to do it. It's uh, it's great to catch up with you. Best of luck with everything you've got coming up this year. I'll be watching the Grand Prix. Hopefully it's like Formula One. Heck yeah, man. And uh, um, let's catch up again soon. Stay tuned. There might be a little little drive to survive uh, style thing to look forward to as well on the content front. Um, okay. And thanks for staying on me about this uh, too as well. I. I started to apologize at one point for being so hard. Well, to dude, I was also, then I, I was like, if there's anyone <laughs> that understands this, it's Dylan. And I know I don't need to apologize to dude, him. I mean, I've been um, white knuckling through life myself. So I'm yeah. just glad we got to do it. And uh, after listening to many of your recent podcasts, it felt like, man, we have so much good stuff to talk about just as, two athletes doing our thing in different sports, but with so many parallels at an exciting time for both of our professional careers and for exciting time for both of the sports that we make our professional careers within. So it's been fun to wrap out, bro. Have a good one. Yeah. I hope- likewise. Can I ask one super quick question? Just yeah, yeah. my own curiosity. Um, what, uh, what events do you have coming up for the year? Dude, I, honestly, I wanna- going back to life being a complete you know, it's been mayhem for me recently. I don't even have a race schedule mapped out yet. Yeah. I've, I've barely been able to train recently. We've been working super hard getting our media operation off the ground. And with all my professional transitions and stuff, it's been hard to really plan, but I've reprioritized training in my life recently. And hopefully that makes me fresh and really motivated come the middle of the summer. I'd love to do UTMB if, uh, Hell yeah. if I can get my act together here soon. <laughs> oh man. Seeing, uh, seeing some of the coverage from UTMB was just, I literally got choked up. I was like, this is beyond sick. Yeah. Like, this well, is, so this, this is, is the what thing. the tour Let's keep like. going on this. You know, there's no reason to end right now because this is totally. actually fun and goes back to something that we talked about earlier and we can end on this, but I think I'm actually writing a manifesto about, my thesis on the future of ultra running right now. And I think that this YouTubeification of the sport is one of the things that really gives us a competitive advantage over an Ironman or a Spartan race or a big city marathon, because people are now seeing what it's like to go race UTMB. And you have these beautiful vistas, this incredibly challenging human endeavor, but in a beautiful place. Right. And so when you compare the two things, a a mountain ultra marathon to a big city marathon, to me, it's a no brainer. You know, to me, it feels like there's only one option there. And I think the same is true in your sport. Right. And that's why mountain biking and gravel racing is exploding right now is because people are like, well, instead of doing whatever the local Fondo or whatever, I could go do unbound and push longer than I've ever gone. Or I could go to Leadville and push myself over these mountains at massive altitude. And with the media, um, you know, with the storytelling now being so high quality, both in trail running and in your sport, I think that's why the YouTubeification of our sports is why things are, are growing so rapidly. Do you have any uh, closing (laughs) thoughts in response to that monologue? No, no. I mean, I, I obviously completely agree with it. Um, 
I think one thing that struck me about, uh, I mean, one of the, one of the places that I really enjoyed following that race was, uh, Courtney DeWalter's Instagram, like just whoever was uploading stories. Uh, I was just riveted as was Nicole, my fiance. We were just like, good God, this is ridiculous. Like the, the sea of people at the finish and everyone, you know, cheering on the, the really steep bits was just, it was my, I got chills. I got choked up. I was like, this is just to feel this. I mean, it's through a freaking phone. Like, give me a break. Like how, how is, how is that making me feel this right now? Yep. But it did. And I was like, man, I want to be there. And I know there's no scenario in which I pivot and I go into mountain running. Like I, I've got a good lane, but there's a piece of me that wishes somehow I could walk a day in Dillon's shoes and be in that environment. Cause that looks crazy. I mean, if you can ever manage the logistics to be there during UTMB week, I put it up there with any sporting experience. I mean, I've never been to Augusta National. I've never been to the US Open. I've never been to the Super Bowl, but the whole week is just so special, so energetic. I'm sure it's the same kind of at at Unbound. And Courtney DeWalter's performance was probably, you know, on the Mount Rushmore of best ever performances by an athlete in our sport and being there, seeing it in person, doing the live commentary, which I did a lot of, um, it's, it's a true gift to be in the sport at this particular moment. I think we can both agree on that. Man, it looks like you guys would need bodyguards, like just the sheer volume of people. I was like, man, being a superhero in that environment, I bet you're just people off left. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, the the most the most uh, famous athletes for sure were happy to wear their masks through town. Yeah, last, the last no couple doubt. Of years. So, no doubt. All right, bro. Well, uh, super fun to wrap out. Really excited to to share the conversation. Appreciate your time. Yeah, likewise. Thank you, Lucy, for making Lutzi. all this happen. Love you, bro. <laughs> <laughs> See ya. How'd we do? Thanks so much to Payson for coming on the show. What a fun guy. And if he listens to this all the way to the end, I hope he feels the love of the trail community emanating in his direction as he recovers from his accident, from his injuries from last weekend. If you want to check Payson out further, there are some links in the show notes, including his Instagram account, the video about his Iceland crossing that we spoke about in the conversation. I also linked to his podcast feed, The Adventure Stash, including the episode that I did with him a couple of years ago. It was one of my favorite favorite podcasts that I've done as a guest. So I'd encourage you guys to go check all those things out and give him a follow. As always, a big thank you to Speedland, Inside Tracker, and Gnarly Nutrition for their support of the show. We are so grateful for their sponsorship. And if you care about what we do, please go visit these brands, use our discount codes and give them a little business. Please support the people who make this show possible. Honestly, it is the only way that it will continue to be sustainable in the near future. Speedland, of course, the best footwear in the world. Inside Tracker, a great place to check in on yourself, get a blood test. I took mine last week. We'll find out what it says. I'm looking forward to learning from it and getting better as an athlete and getting healthier as a human being from those learnings. And of course, Gnarly Nutrition, the best nutrition brand on the market, NSF certified, free trail 15, use the discount code, go take advantage of these great products and please support these amazing brands. 
We've got some the Gorge Waterfalls coming up in two weeks. My first experience as an event director, excited for that. We also have some other really exciting announcements coming soon. I think you guys are gonna be really stoked about. Again, more soon on that. That's it for now though. Love you all very much. We'll talk to you very soon. Bye-bye.